Uh, thank you so much for letting me be with you all this morning. Um, we're going to be looking at Psalm 16, and I'm actually going to be reading from the NLT version. So if you uh, have a Bible and, or an app and you want to look up that, um, while you're finding that, I'll just uh, make a quick comment that, um, yeah, I am a pastor at Salem Prez, um, but I am familiar with this church. Um, my wife and I started coming to uh, what became Salem when it was the 5 o'clock service at Redeemer, and um, I wanted to, I shared with the first service that last week I was in Memphis for the General Assembly, and I got to run into Susan there, and uh, and then I also got to see uh, John Bourgeois, who used to be a part of this community and uh, was the REF campus minister at Wake Forest. And then I also got to see your former assistant pastor, Joel Littlepage, and it was just a testament to the ways that this church has fed into young leaders and raised them up, and uh, I count myself as a beneficiary of that, so wanted to share those greetings and that gratitude. So we'll... Uh, We'll look at Psalm 16, again, in the NLT, if you uh, have that in a Bible app, or you can just read along in whatever translation you've got with you, and I think it's also printed in your bulletin, so let's hear from God's Word. Psalm 16, a psalm of David. Keep me safe, O God, for I have come to you for refuge. I said to the Lord, you are my master. Every good thing I have comes from you. The godly people in the land are my true heroes. I take pleasure in them. Troubles multiply for those who chase after other gods. I will not take part in their sacrifices of blood or even speak the names of their gods. Lord, you alone are my inheritance, my cup of blessing. You guard all that is mine. The land you've given me is a pleasant land. What a wonderful inheritance. I will bless the Lord who guides me, even at night. My heart instructs me. I know the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken, for he is right beside me. No wonder my heart is glad and I rejoice. My body rests in safety. For you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. You will show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God will endure forever. Uh, so before we get into Psalm 16, I would like to ask you a question to put in your mind throughout this sermon. Uh, if someone says to you, or you're just thinking to yourself, why did Jesus come? Think about how you would answer that. What is the, it's probably a Sunday school answer or some sort of sentence that you've got in your head. I'm going to guess that it's something like this, that you would say, well, Jesus came to die for my sins. Uh, but that's not really an answer to the question, why did the Messiah come? It answers how he completed his mission, right? But it doesn't really answer why he came. In fact, it kind of raises more questions, like why did he have to die? Um, he came to die, and his death was an act of loving sacrifice from God on our behalf to himself. But the reason why Christ came was ultimately to restore all things to the perfection that the Trinity designed. So the Son coming in the flesh, dying and rising, those are a means to the end. And that end is to know and be known by God. 
to have communion with him. That, that's the original intent of why we were created. And so looking through Psalms, uh, you know, they specifically, I think, are such a beautiful way of reminding us not just of our salvation, but that our salvation is a means to the end, which is that we were made to know God. Everything else we believe as Christians should be about knowing God, his acts of faithfulness to our broken relationship with him. What makes the Psalms unique, one of the reasons I love the Psalms is that, uh, as one scholar puts it, when we read the Bible, we're reading the words from God to people or through people. They're The Bible is is stories about creation, the story of our ancestors. It's words from God, right? But the Psalms are words from God to people. And it's a little different. It gives us a picture of how we are to relate to God. So as we go into Psalm 16, I want to propose that we pull out three threads when we go through this Psalm, right? Okay, so one is safety. Uh, The second is inheritance or blessing. And then the third is guardianship. So safety, inheritance or blessing, and then guardianship. We're going to go through those things in the psalm. So let's start with safety. Um, Safety sounds like a therapeutic term. And there is a place to critique a therapeutic understanding of following Jesus. And those critiques often happen in Presbyterian churches, which is the place where we don't really need to critique that. We, we are, we're, I'm going to speak for my church and then guess that you might be similar and just say that sometimes uh, Presbyterians are not known for our emotional intelligence. Um, and so I don't think we're like needing to grow in our ability to, uh, we don't need to critique the therapeutic sense of, of what's in scripture. In fact, I think in some ways we need to recover that. Um, Presbyterians, Salem Prez, I'm going to say, my church, but dare I say to Redeemer, I preached this sermon to them a couple months ago, um, can sometimes be stereotyped as pitting emotion and intellect against each other and then privileging intellect. Um, But this text itself talks about the physical and psychological safety that is available in God. It's in the text. You know, the Hebrew word for safety that's used in this psalm more than once, it means protection. It means refuge. I like how the NLT translates it safety because that syncs up with the guardianship we're going to talk about later, that having a a good guardian means that you're living in safety. Uh, So let's start out by just talking about, like, why the Lord is safe, why the Messiah is safe. Uh, How many of you have read the Chronicles of Narnia? Okay. So uh, I'm a huge fan of the Chronicles of Narnia. We're, we're in, we go through cycles of reading it in our household. We're on Don Treader right now. And, um, but when you hear that me say God is safe, you might think that's not what Narnia says, right? Because Mr. Beaver says of Aslan, safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you, right? And I love that quote, but Lewis was using that allegorical lion to display the awe-inspiring, the untamed power. He uses that phrase throughout the Chronicles, this untamed power 
of God over and against a fluffy, passive view of the Lord. So a lion is not safe as in he is not tamed or submitted to another power. And that's true of the Lord. But God is safe. And this psalm testifies to that. Uh, David asks in verse 1, keep me safe. But when I read that, I don't think it comes off like a plea or a desperate cry. I don't read it like David saying, oh, would you please keep me safe? I read it like he's saying, I already am safe. I'm asking you to continue to do that. I'm asking you to continue to provide that for me. And I read that tone into David because I see throughout this psalm how much he's emphasizing God's safety throughout the text. Uh, David expects safety. David has a healthy attachment with God. He says in verse 5, you guard. And in verse 8, David says, I will not be shaken. In verse 9, he says, his body rests in safety. He assumes that he should feel safe, that he should feel guarded. And my question is, do you feel safe? Do you feel guarded? And I don't mean that in like a threatening sense. I mean that in like a comforting, like I'm guessing a lot of you don't. Um, I find it really interesting that David doesn't just say, I rest in safety. He says, my body rests in safety. It's very human of him. It's not just a spiritual platitude. Oh, I, I feel safe in God. He's saying, he's very specific. My body is resting in safety. It's not just, my soul's feeling comfortable. Uh, he recognizes that feeling Physically safe in your body is spiritual. We feel things in our body, do we not? Uh, Trauma-informed therapy has taught us, as one famous book says, that the body keeps the score. How many of us, though, can say that our bodies feel safe at all times? You know, I think if I can't say that, and I have a lot of privilege and protection in my life, then I imagine that certainly many of you cannot either. When I was a kid, the first I remember feeling truly unsafe was in middle school. I was at home alone, and it was the evening. My parents were out. My little sister was home in a different part of the house. And a helicopter flew by the house, and it had a spotlight on. It was really low, and it was probably searching for someone. And instead of the rational fear of gosh, I wonder if they're looking for someone near our house. I was a sixth grader in the mid-90s, pretty into the Mission Impossible movies, and I thought to myself, this helicopter's about to attack my house. <laughs> they found me. I don't know how they found me. <laughs> but I was pretty into SWAT teams and Mission Impossible and uh, pseudo-military type movies, and it was the first time I ever experienced my knees buckling. And, you know, I'm bringing this up as a, as a funny example, but I had never really understood until that point in my life that that wasn't an analogy, that that's something that people physically experience, something I experienced, and that I'm guessing many of you have experienced in um, much more visceral and serious ways than um, the delusion that you as a middle schooler have angered some paramilitary group that has a helicopter. For Protestants like us, that needs to be acknowledged and recovered. Uh, if you find yourself dismissing 
this safe body talk as overly therapeutic, I would challenge you to rethink that dismissal. To quote James K. Smith, you are what you think is a motto that reduces human beings to a brain on a stick. Ironically, such thinking thingism assumes that the heart of the person is in the mind. And I think, that, I mean, I've been guilty of that. I don't know if you have. Uh, for an intellectual crowd, it can be easy to conflate Christianity with head knowledge. But Psalm 16 is kind of repudiating that. Um, and I would say that the incarnation of Christ also has a lot to say about us being a creature consisting of a mind, body, and a spirit. Your faith rests within your body, and your emotions are there too, just as much as your mind. So faith is not exclusively, or I would say even primarily, cognitive. You're a person with ideas, appetites, feelings, and Psalm 16, I think, really underscores this. Uh, for those of us who feel feelings in our bodies that really affect our belief, I think this actually validates feeling unsafe is not good. What I mean by that is that if you're someone who's experienced things in church and, and you feel physically uncomfortable and it affects the way that you experience the people of the church, then I actually think that this psalm is saying something to you because it's saying you're, the fact that that feels dissonant for you shows that you were created to experience something different. You were you not created to feel physically unsafe in the church. But that's an experience that a lot of people have had. I think that this psalm is validating that because David is asking to feel like he will not be shaken. And he expects that that's something that the Lord can provide. So if you have sadness or anxiety or fears, feelings, appetites in your body, but the gospel has only been communicated to you as an intellectual worldview, it would make sense that the gospel would not feel very sufficient to you. Psalm 16 is saying the body keeps the score. David is praying for safety, for security in his spirit, but also in his body. God has taken on flesh in Jesus and answers these prayers with words of comfort to the mind, but also dignity for bodies by his taking on of the flesh. And for some of us, that's a relief. And for some of us, it might expose a lopsided faith that's only aware of what goes on in our minds, but not in our bodies. So that's the safety part of the psalm. I want to talk now about the blessing and the inheritance language that's kind of laced throughout. Uh, God doesn't want us to just be safe. Psalm 16 says that he, he wants us to feel blessed. Uh, for probably a decade plus, there's been a certain category of Christian music that I was uh, very cynical and pretty dismissive about. Um, if you don't know, my, my primary role at our church is doing more, I do a lot more with music than I do with preaching. And I, I think a lot about hymns and lyrics and songs and song selection. And the songs that I was really dismissive of would be the kind of contemporary songs that sing in the first person voice of God, speaking comfort to his people through the people leading worship, or just celebrating how much he loves us. 
And one of my critiques was to say that I don't go around walking throughout the city saying, oh, how my wife loves me. My wife loves me so much. It, I am her great joy. You know, I don't do that. That would be weird. And, um, but the thing that I, I came to realize was that I'm not God's wife or husband or whatever. The church is, of course, the bride of Christ. But my principal identity, according to Scripture, is that I'm a child of God. And healthy, attached, secure children, they celebrate how loved they are by their parents. My youngest son uh, is uh, very well attached. He has a lot of confidence, like all the confidence you could ever, you, 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 you could be amazed that it all fits in his body. His brothers are sitting here, they're like, yes, we are aware of that. Um, he, I frequently describe him as someone who I believe will have a very successful pyramid scheme. Um, and he continues to ask, so in our house we have, a, we have a counter in our kitchen with four stools. We have four kids, four stools. And we'll be sitting there having dinner or breakfast. My wife and I are usually standing on one side of the counter. The kids are sitting on the other. He also lacks volume control. He's a, he's a very, he projects very well. And in a disproportionately loud manner, he will frequently ask, right, boys? He will say, who's your favorite? And it's a rhetorical question. What he means is, I know it's me. I would like for you to confirm it in front of the rest of them. Because he has grown up in a household where he has two older brothers, a sister, and two parents. So his whole life has been a lot of people taking care of him, looking out for him, giving him encouragement, and maybe even um, spoiling and responding uh, wrongly to his tantrums. And that has conditioned him to feel safe, but not just safe, loved and attached and provided for. And I bring that up in, in this idea of talking about blessing and inheritance because I think that my inability to sing those kinds of songs has to do with something that we get conditioned in in intellectual Protestantism, which is that sometimes we have a little too much obsession with memorizing facts and knowing things about ourselves and not enough room for the mystery of God's love and blessing. Uh, the former is problematic. Uh, there, but, but not really um, exclusively, meaning like learning a bunch of things about the faith is really edifying. Uh, but when you couple that with not having enough room for mystery, you're going to create a pretty malformed Christian. And I think sometimes some Presbyterians are ironically the most self-obsessed Christians. We talk a lot about my failure, our failure, my sin. My, my rags. And we try not to talk too much about how God's blessing us. It's almost superstitious. But his blessing of us is what glorifies him, not our constant self-castigation. 
Um, so, you know, let me pose this thought to you. Maybe it's not contemporary Christian music, musicians who are the only narcissists or are, are the narcissists. Maybe, maybe, it's, maybe it's the Reformed people. You know, the crux of our faith is not just to know about a distant God, speak of him little, and then spend our energy focused on our failures. It's about his work to draw us people who are broken. Don't hear me saying that we're not. But to draw broken people to him, it's about him. It's about him coming to us to have intimacy, to have a blessed relationship. I think in an effort at humility, we might be blind to how much we obsess with ourselves. And by doing so, we, we might be missing how much God does in fact pour out his love on us. This psalm says, every good thing comes from him, and that's reiterated in the book of James. And that may sound like a platitude to you, but that means that God's children can expect good things. And when I say that, I just, as a caveat, you know, I think in contrast to what Beverly was saying about the martyrs, I'm not saying that this psalm is saying that God wants to bless materially every person in his fold with perfect safety and material abundance, right? But it is a metaphor that I don't think that we lean into enough, that we should have that experience even if that's not our reality. Verse 5 says, you're my inheritance. You are my cup of blessing. Verse 6 continues saying, you gave me land. It's a pleasant land. A wonderful inheritance, he calls it. It ends with verse 11 where David expects to be shown a thriving way of life, expects to be granted joy, and ends with a life of pleasure. I like to say that beverages are my love language. Um, I'm told by my wife and others that beverages offer almost no nutritional value um, other than water. I think the term is empty calories, but um, I'm, that's my empty calories are my love language. Um, this this uh, psalm compares a blessing inheritance with a cup, right? So whether for you it's apple juice or a good wine or a craft beer, or some expensive whiskey, or a latte, and a nice mug, or a juice shop smoothie. You can probably think of a delicious beverage that brings you joy. I know there's one family here that loves seltzer. I see that. That might be your, your thing. We're made to be a people of an inheritance. We're made to be a people who have a delicious cup of blessing. So. Just to recap those first two points, as children of God, this psalm is saying that we, like David, are people that can expect that we were made to experience safety and to experience the richness of a cup that overfloweth, right? And I think those two things are um, results of being children under the guardianship of God. So let's finish by focusing on the guardianship language in this psalm. There have been many times in my life when I have not felt safe, and I've not felt like God's presence was very apparent in my life. 
let alone, I mean, I'm very far from any language of a cup of blessing. Just wondering, like, is God real? Is he there? And I don't think I need to rehearse for you all those ugly things that you do or that I do to self-medicate in those things, in those moments. Um, I think that type of um, self-awareness takes care of itself when we're alone and sad and deal with self-hatred after we try to find remedy in something else. Um, so I don't really want to talk about why we're missing out on God, like what is in our life that's missing out on him. I'd rather focus more on just this mindset shift of when you find yourself in that place where you're wondering, where is God? Is he real? Why don't I feel safe? Why don't I feel blessed? When I first met the Lord, I was 18 years old, and I, I felt his presence in a really visceral way. And I did hear his whisper in my core. And that was a sweet season that lasted for a few years. Uh, but then I faced a, a real dark night of the soul in my mid-20s. And I would say it lasted uh, for years in a really dense way. But I think it lingered, I would say, all the way up to last summer. So that's all of my pastoral career. And I would share that with people I was close with. I would say, I just, I, I don't feel like I know if I, the, I don't feel like I know the Lord. I don't sense him. I don't, I don't know if I can believe. And I got a lot of advice. If you've been around the church for a long time, you might know of this phenomenon where people give you advice. And uh, you didn't ask for it, but they are going to share it with you. And pastors are the best at sharing unsolicited advice. And I have a lot of friends who are pastors because I am one. And I got a lot of unsolicited advice. And they would tell me, the, the first piece of advice I got a lot was, oh, you need a rule of life. If, if you don't know what that is, it's like you need to find a structure for your day where you pray certain prayers through the day, and that will kind of remedy this. Build disciplines where, you, where you're kind of, the discipline will eventually turn into something authentic. Um, I had a couple other friends who really pushed me to become adept at understanding the Enneagram so that I can understand myself better. Another tact that I took was that I went real hard into studying the Bible. I went to seminary twice and made a real academic discipline out of uh, trying to understand the facts of the nitty-gritty of Scripture. I tried Bible reading plans. I tried lots of podcasts that were recommended, books that were suggested, disciplines prescribed, and none of that worked because these are all jigs. What I mean by jig is not like uh, not the dance. I mean like, like the tool. So if you don't know what a jig is, it, it's a tool. It's something that you make to make a certain task easier, especially easier to repeat. Um, and jigs are super helpful if your goal is to be efficient. And uh, my daughter's walking in. Hi. Um, jigs are really helpful if you're trying to be efficient and if you're trying to repeat a task. But they're not helpful when you're trying to find something 
authentic in your relationship with the Lord. The last thread of this psalm, this guardianship of God, let's look at a couple verses where it pops up. Verse 5 says, God guards all that is mine. Verse 7 says, he guides me. He instructs my heart at night. Verse 2 says, you are my master. This psalm, the Christian faith for that matter, are not about a worldview. They're not about a practice or anything other than knowing God himself. Let me say that again. The Christian faith is not about a worldview or practices or a head knowledge about a certain thing. It is principally, dare I say exclusively, about knowing God himself. That he is safe, that he loves you, that if you feel unsafe and unloved, it may be because you are not experiencing his guardianship. God is a good father who is safe who wants to bless you, but for many reasons, we behave like we're fatherless. And some of those reasons are because of other people, no doubt. Uh, Many of us have experienced spiritual or physical or emotional trauma that has our bodies and minds in a state of alert for danger. And I think I have to say, that for many of us, myself included, there's also just a rejection of God's guardianship. You know, I certainly don't want a master, as the language of this psalm has. But I think to experience that safety, that blessing, you kind of have to put yourself under that guardianship, within that, find yourself hidden within it to use language that's throughout the rest of the Psalms. In the long and less structured daylight of summer, uh, I I think you might be like me, and you might find yourself feeling distance from God more strongly. You know, the summer is just a different routine for a lot of people, no matter what phase of life you're in. Uh, Maybe your friends are traveling a lot. You know, maybe you're just staying up late because there's late sunsets just throws off our rhythms. And in that, it might expose like some loneliness in us or, or just some um, distraction that we've taken part in for most of the year that's not available as much. And I just want to encourage you not to make the same mistake that I did for so many years and try to find him, to try to find him without simply giving up your will. I spent years in frantic search for his presence and his voice, and the only place that I didn't look was him. I fear that too many of us have been told the story that Dallas Willard calls barcode Christianity. And this is that Jesus died so that you can have a barcode affixed to you that scans you for heaven. So once you get the sticker, you simply wait out the clock to get scanned at a later date. And the Son of God did, in fact, come to reconcile us to the Father in that way. But, but really, the whole arc of what God's been doing over history is that he's been bringing his presence to humans. And that culminated in the flesh 
in Christ and is fulfilled in his spirit dwelling in and around us every day. And that gift is not just a paid debt. It's a means to his presence. His presence is the end goal. It's very possible that many of you have been going to church for a long time, but you've never felt the presence of God. And I would guess that that means you also feel unsafe, that you feel not provided for, that you might feel on edge. And if so, I want to challenge you to slow down and listen to what this psalm is saying to you about safety and guardianship and blessing. Ruth Haley Barton describes our soul as a jar of river water that's shaken up throughout our waking hours. We can't see through the murky sediment until we let the jar settle. And then the water can clear and we can see. You don't need a book. You don't need a podcast. You don't need a personality typing. You don't need any jig. You don't need a new Bible. You don't need a new journal or a cathedral or a priest to sit down some hour of the day where you can find it and think about this. That Jesus was, in, was betrayed, but instead of condemning us, as some of you have maybe experienced from other humans, he gave us a cup of blessing. That instead of revoking our own safety, he compromised his safety. He gave up his safety. That he broke his body so that we could know that he can be trusted, that he is safe, and that he will provide. He made it clear to us that the Father is not scary, he is safe, by taking our punishment on himself and adopting us into the family that we rejected. 